0: we didn't want to be the shrinking violet. No. Um, We didn't want to be the patronising chemist. We didn't want to be the nervous Nancy about skin cancer. Like there were lots of things we didn't want and I think we wanted a strong, confident woman. Like we wanted Violet to be this amazing character and so I think that also played into the choice about colours.
1: How do you scale a product-based business internationally without taking on any external investment? We asked Ava and Beck, co-founders of Ultraviolet, a brand that in 2019 erupted onto the beauty scene to shake up the sunscreen category, or as they like to call it, Skin Scream. It's the SPF you can wear without hating life. After launching direct-to-consumer, the brand achieved a cult-like status pretty quickly, and it's now stocked in Sephora and Adore Beauty with their sights set on Overseas. Ava and Beck have a long history together. They were co workers in a previous life and friends for many years, so it was really a no brainer that they'd go into business together. We spoke about the ins and outs of their relationship, how they've been able to establish themselves so quickly as a category leader, and why they've taken the hard road to scale on their own dime.
2: So, Ava, Beck, you launched Ultraviolet back in 2019. Can you tell us a little bit about not only where the idea came from, but why did you decide to disrupt an entire skincare category?
0: <laughs> you go. <laughs> okay, this is the first time we've done this together. No, yeah, so, we haven't yeah, done this we'll, together. We'll, was, we we're like in the same room because yeah. it's been a while. Okay, so why did we decide to disrupt a category? That sounds very grand, but... Um, We really wanted to solve a problem. So Ultraviolet was really about creating sun protection that women could wear every day just like they would a skincare product. And it was really about meshing sunscreen and skincare. So we like to call it skin screen. And we thought that was solving a problem that a lot of people, us included, faced every single morning. Like we all knew we had to wear SPF every day. We couldn't find one that didn't make our eyes water or make our skin breakout or was whitening or greasy or all this myriad of problems that we'd heard for years and encountered ourselves. So Ultraviolet was about solving that problem with formulations that um, felt like skincare and then a brand that people wanted to engage with and that you'd be proud to have in your bathroom cabinet or in your handbag.
3: And I, I don't think that we, at the time, we thought we were completely disrupting a category. I think because we'd been in product development, I think it felt I don't know, like just a continuation of what we'd been doing previously. And I, I we didn't actually go into it with the intention of disrupting a category. But I think what we did look at when we were going in was looking at a category that traditionally hadn't been very fun, cool, sexy, whatever you want to say, and trying to make it the opposite of what it was. So, yeah, it wasn't a conversation we ever ever really had at the beginning saying, let's go and disrupt this category. (laughs) (laughs) It was kind of just like, let's make a product that we know we need to wear every day and is traditionally and historically pretty shitty and make it something that we, like us and all our friends want to wear.
2: And so you both worked together at Mecca. That's how I know you. Beck. you were Ava's boss. What was Ava like as an employee? Oh, look, it,
0: I, I guess I don't operate in that type of a hierarchical sense. And no. I, I we had a brilliant team at Mecca and really formed some lifelong friendships and worked with some amazing people. And, and you know, I was lucky to encounter Ava in that posse. We got along incredibly well. We both have um, a love for French champagne. That's Ooh. always a good uh, fire. You yep. can bond over that. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it, it kind of felt natural to just want to talk about, you know, business and brand opportunities and we really enjoyed each other's company. We don't necessarily socialise every weekend together, but, um, you know, we're good enough friends that we embarked on this crazy journey together and it seems like it's, it was just a natural evolution of, of yeah. working together.
3: We were friends. Like, we were, you were kind of more of a friend than a boss. Yeah. And, yeah, as Beck said, she's not really hierarchical. I think it felt like, an, you know, everyone just did their jobs. Unless you weren't doing a job, in which case they <laughs> <laughs> could pull you up. The I yeah. There was a whip cracked every day, yeah. not with Ava. Not with me. No, because no. d- it wouldn't have landed very well. And I think, <laughs> no. <laughs> and I think we each understood where we fit in the puzzle. Mm. I think she knew what I was bringing to that team. Totally. And yeah. I knew where I would need to ask her for help. And she, well, actually, I probably wouldn't even need to ask because she would just be
1: there helping. <laughs> So the dynamic didn't really have to change. It was kind of set up nicely from the beginning.
3: Um, It helped that we went each went and did our own thing in between Mecca and Ultraviolet, I think, because it gave us Mm. a bit more of that distance from that relationship, even though it wasn't like a traditional boss-employee relationship. We probably needed a bit of distance just to kind of, I guess, out- Outgrow. Outgrow. That's what I was thinking, but it's not the right thing. Um, Whatever. Evolve. Evolve, Evolve. Evolve. Yeah. is the word. <laughs> yeah. Evolve from that. And I think if anything, it was probably di- more difficult f- for me because I would find myself sometimes going back into that like, oh, do I need to check this with Beck on this? Like, I mean, and that's also probably a good thing because it's communication and you're, you know, we bo- probably both should be checking a lot of things with each other. <laughs> So I think kind of having that dynamic for me was helpful but also at the same time I I did have to consciously be like, you know, you guys are this is a partnership. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I mean, I just it-
0: I implicitly um, and explicitly trust Ava. And, you know, I wouldn't have gone into business with someone that I didn't admire and respect, and that also, you know, had strengths that I didn't have. So it was also just a beautiful partnership in looking at both of our strengths on paper and together. It really made sense that we could cover a lot of what we needed to to start a business. And I, I really feel for business owners that don't have someone at that mm. same level as them that you can both care so deeply about the business that have yeah. a different and a shared skill set. Um, we definitely have some shared skills, but we yeah. also have some really different strengths. And I think it was just a beautiful union to kind of bring those two things together and, and start a business together. And I think as we've gotten into the flow of the business, it's felt more and more natural because there's a whole part of the business that Ava looks after and it's, you know, distinct from the part of the business that I do. Yeah. So it definitely feels more natural as we've gotten going.
3: Yeah. I think you just fall into the, the routine. And, and, you know, that's one of the pieces of advice that I give to people who, when I'm asked is if you can find someone who is very complimentary to your skill set that's going to take you so far because it means there's a whole load of stuff you don't necessarily need to worry about in terms of being hands-on every day. Because of the stuff that Beck does, I mean, we we say these to each other, but yes, we, we wouldn't have a business <laughs> if it weren't for the other. Like, yeah. I, I don't know if I would have started Ultraviolet by myself, maybe in a very different way, but it wouldn't be as good as it
2: is. Aww. So you're the creative sort of brand creative marketing and you yep. you look after the more sort of finance, commercial operations. Is that right? Yes.
3: Yep. And we sat down at the very beginning and we were like with a PowerPoint and we said, what Classic. areas of the business are you going to be yeah. responsible for? And what areas of the business is Beck going to be responsible for? And we literally wrote it down like bullet mm. points. It was mm. like HR, Beck. <laughs> Le- legal,
0: Beck. All the fun stuff. Yeah.
3: But then overlapping on
0: product development, yeah. which is kind of the heart of the business. Yeah. And then Ava obviously specializing in, you know, all brand product marketing, social, mm. um, creative.
2: Yeah. It's interesting. You often hear about co-founder relationships where people have a complementary skill set. But what about that area where you overlap, where you both have expertise, you both have opinions, they may not always be the same. How do you navigate the areas where you do overlap? And are there points of tension in terms of I guess product formulation or any other over the business.
0: I think in any healthy relationship, there are the points of tension, like we're not yeah. the same person. no. And um I think as strongly as we disagree on things, we strongly agree on things. yeah, and and like I think what we've, coming from a place where we'd worked together, we weren't just friends that hung out on the weekend. Like we had seen each other's work style. And I think that gave us a real head start mm-hmm. to how do we navigate those tensions? And, and I want tension. Like I want to be really pushing the envelope so that, you know, both of us sometimes feel uncomfortable. And I think over the time, we've learned to communicate with one another about how strongly each other feels about certain points. And I think yeah. that's helped guide that tension process because i know oh, look, Ava's like a dog with a bone over this so I <laughs> I need to <laughs> i need to have some really good arguments if i'm going yeah. to convince her yeah. otherwise and the other thing is strangely enough we're not stubborn on a point like no. i think we'll get on a point that we feel strongly about but if the other person has some really good arguments then definitely like there's, you know, we'll listen to one another. And, yeah. you know, one thing we did do early on in the business that I think is really important for co-founders, we did a values exercise where we did a workshop and we workshopped, you know, what are our own personal values that we're bringing into this business? Where do they overlap? And what are the ones that we really want to keep and inject into this business? And I think that helped give us a framework for communicating with one another, for decision making, and and hopefully for a foundation for a culture that enables us to, I guess, share that with other people as we grow the team and and the business continues. So I think that was a really good exercise just to really establish what was our relationship like in this business as opposed to what it had been previously.
1: I love that. We did a very similar thing. You know, we assessed our values and we decided, okay, these are the ones that we want to carry through. And I often think that there's a beautiful reflection of your personal values that come out in your business as well. Do you see that? We're not you know I'm one
3: person, Becks one person. Mm-hmm. All like my personal life, my business life, everything coexists inside. There's not, you know, it's really hard. I think particularly for me, who's never really been able to create great boundaries in any capacity of my <laughs> life, um, to not really ever have to divide who I am at work is who I am at home. I'm obviously probably a bit nastier to my husband and I am my co-workers. Like, oh, <laughs> Sorry, Dion. Um, but I find that what I the things that I care about in business are the things that I care about,
2: you know, outside of business. Can you share some examples of the values that you each bring to the business and how they've kind of played out in terms of your relationship, but also how they've manifested in Ultraviolet?
0: Yeah, it was a really mm. doing that exercise. It was some things were obvious mm. about, and we had to guess each other's values. I don't know if you oh, did it's that. Fun. But, um, we didn't do that. Yeah, it was really <laughs> it was really eye opening. And then and then we had to kind of you know what were the ones we wanted to bring as we discussed it. So I think one of the ones that I hope we live every day is just finding the fun. Yeah, mm. You know, Like it can get really heavy. Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. Can't it can it? It particularly really with can. what
0: we've all been through, and if you yeah. can't find the fun. And and it doesn't mean throwing a massive party every day. It means Sadly. just find. I know. <laughs> <laughs> we're not, not in the event means. catering business. Yeah, no. we're in the sunscreen <laughs> business. <I know. laughs> but if we can't have a laugh, or find a lightness in in a topic, I think, and, and I definitely feel like we've been able to. Both of us
3: have that approach, and we've been able to bring that yeah. um, into the business. Yeah. I want to say we're not curing cancer, but in our case, maybe we are. (laughs) Sun cancer, I mean skin cancer anyway. But yeah, that sense of fun is absolutely something that was front of both, you know, at the forefront of both of our minds when we were doing this values exercise. I'm trying to think of the other ones. Um, Achieving. Achievement, yes. And that was something that really Mm. surprised me because that I cared so strongly. I mean, Mm. I care about achieving, but I think it's in a different way to Beck. I care about like the ultimate kind of success of something. Whereas Beck's version of achievement is probably a little bit more like, I don't know, methodical or daily. Whereas, <laughs> Well, I guess as someone who sits on
0: the numbers, I have opportunity to reflect on success probably more frequently in a quantitative sense. And it wasn't just achievement. It was yeah. like striving together yes. to achieve big things. And yeah. I think it's that essence of teamwork that yeah. um, that both of us love. And I don't want to work in a business that doesn't strive together like i yeah. want everyone to feel like they're part of this uh, and hopefully you know our our team do but that's something that was I really do. important to both of us and i'm really yeah. glad that that's made its way into that list.
2: <laughs> yeah. How do you find those moments of lightheartedness and fun when you're in a really tough place whether it's emotionally or mentally or financially, you know, there are some really bloody hard times when you're trying to get a business off the ground. How do you kind of find those moments? How
3: have you? Hmm.
2: That's a good question. It's a
3: good question. It's hard. It is really hard. I'm thinking about that time. I'm thinking about that day at the warehouse going through all those bottles. Tell us <laughs> the story. <laughs> happened. What uh, happened? <laughs> oh, we've been having major issues with one of our main suppliers. There was a product formula that kind of, I don't know, what's the best way to say it. it's not wasn't faulty. It was kind of just not as robust as as we mm. you know we'd been led to believe. And there were some issues with our main, with our bestseller. And I just think it was kind of building to this precipice. And we were dealing with, you know, the supplier who, they were not helpful. They were very difficult. We were looking at losing, you know, what was quite a substantial amount of money. Mm. Um, and potentially, you know, you know, losing face in front of our customers and potentially losing customers, which to us was Everything. You know, devastating. Yeah. And I just blew up in the car and we had our <laughs> intern... <laughs> Who is now an employee in the back. Yeah. Just being like, What shows are you guys watching after because I was silent, like staring out the window? <laughs> we were on our way to the warehouse to like oh,
0: pick through every single to item. Look and at, look it at was, every bottle it was a of dire situation. Going. And look, I think yeah, you know, how did we find lightness in that situation? We just kept going. going yeah. And uh, I'd say that's probably, that's one, you know, tactic to get through it is you just have to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And I think we're both pretty resilient. Yeah. thank goodness, like through the anger and the the black clouds over both of our heads, we could push through. But I think another way in more generally that I've noticed that if one person's really upset about something or really getting them down, the other person seems to kind of counterbalance yeah, that. And and I think it helps because we are looking after different parts of the business. But I think it helps to not have both of you in the pit at the same time because yeah. that sucks.
3: Yeah. so And I think I, just yeah. a, a matter of perspective as well, when you're mm. deep in something and you've been stewing over it for a couple of days and then you come in, you're like, this is the problem. And I'm like, oh, well, like what, yeah. what's the solution? And it, it does make it a lot easier when someone's not as mm. deep in it. But, you know, we try and I mean, finding the fun. We try. I think we we have a lot of fun when we go to we work. Great, we have a great time. I'm already thinking about where we're going to go and eat after this. <laughs> 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 sounds
1: like us. A- this sounds great. Um, <laughs> if we've
3: got a, an important meeting, you know, we're like, okay, let's go go out to lunch somewhere and like have a couple of glasses of wine and nut through it and. Mm. And that kind of <laughs> alcohol always can help lighten the mood, I think, sometimes. Or, I guess, darken, <laughs> it, darken- depending <laughs> yeah, it, depending on, on where you're at.
1: not <laughs> um, tend to darken it with us, though. No, no. you we know your limits. Yeah. That's important. We're Yeah. Up. yeah. yeah. Mm. You were talking about challenges with product formulation, and I think um, that's a really good place to kind of head. You know, you guys do have, you know, some ex- previous experience with this um, at Mecca, it's such a big beast. And I know we have a lot of people that are really interested in understanding more about the process. What have been some of the other kind of lessons that you have learned throughout this process? I actually started my product development journey at um, L'Oreal. So I joined there in New York and that was my
0: first entry into beauty product development. And I was um, given the hair color category product development to look after. And i had taken over from what was the Pretty major fuck up that happened before. And it wasn't my wasn't mine, but I would never ever forget this. And it kind of seared into my mind the importance of several things when developing product. So the situation was it was a beautiful new lightning product that like, and these are at this is at-home hair colour key point. Beautiful range of blondes, shiny, beautiful, non-brassy blondes. And the packaging was great, the models were awesome, the formulation was fabulous there was a tiny little detail on the instruction sheet that could have been misinterpreted in terms of how long you leave the product on your head. Mm. And it resulted in people's hair falling out, their scalps burning. It was a pretty big disaster. And, you know, you can understand you've got a million things to do. The girls have done a brilliant job. There was just one little thing. And even if you read it a certain way, the instructions sounded fine, but you just have to be robust and watertight when you're dealing with peroxide. And I think because I took the helm at that point after the storm, like they say, don't you always go into a city after the bomb's gone off? I think I was that person. And it really, I guess, made me super paranoid about details. And that's a really important part about product development. You kind of can't be paranoid enough. Mm -hmm. And, you know, crossing your T's and dotting your I's is another way of saying like there are a million details. You kind of can't assume any details, a small one. You know, you may have thought the instruction sheet was the least of your worries, but it undid this beautiful product. So I guess that taught me from an early stage, just really try and disaster check everything, try and think through all the things that could go wrong. And what we did for Ultraviolet, we deliberately launched direct-to-consumer first. And even though we both had years of experience in product development, we knew we probably wouldn't nail every single product, yeah. and we wanted to be the first ones to hear it, not for it to come secondhand through a retail
3: partner or a distributor or something like that. Where the information is um, diluted, and, and you're and not and hearing not as it crisp. from yeah, you're hearing it not from the consumer, but you're hearing it from you know the customer yeah. service team who've that's right relayed it to the brand team, who's relayed it to the buying team, and then have relayed it to you. So in that first year, we
0: reformulated four of our products. Yeah. And they were not major changes. One of them was a major change. Some were fragrance related. Um, one we improved. We got the lip balms from an SPF 30 to an SPF 50 that we'd been continuing to work on in the background. So I guess it gave us that appreciation for we're not going to nail this. Even though we've mm. done like rounds and rounds of testing, you can do that as much as you like. But once something's mm. out in the world, you have to be prepared
3: to react and to react quickly. Yeah. And I would say the one piece of advice that's always stuck with me in terms of product is just be prepared for any product you make to take, you know, four times as long as you think it's going to take and four times the amount of money you think it's going to cost. We call it it the time tax. Yeah. Mm. And it's going to be more expensive. And you you know what? It's probably not going to be, it might not be that great. Maybe you'll nail it on the first go, but you might change it three times.
2: Mm.
0: and
3: You can't have an ego about it. No. Because it's not about necessarily about what you want. It's about, you know, what your customers want.
2: And in that iteration process, as you improve products, you know, after they're in market, what do you do with the products that the old product or the old formulation or the old version, do you sell that out or is that kind of like a sunk cost?
3: It depends, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes if something's not working as it's meant to work, mm. it's a write-off that's baby. A yeah. It's <laughs> just, the old. The <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Yeah, that's just a cost. But if it's you know, something that's, I guess, if you're changing the formula for something that you think is going to be, but there's still a loyal customer to that particular formula, like, I don't know, we sold things at a discount, you can do bundles, you know, if something's about to expire, you have to write it off, like you can't continue to sell that, that's just not the right thing to do by the consumer. We actually changed um, our clean screen
0: formula quite significantly and we switched over to the new formula, but we knew that some people loved the yeah. old. So we kept a stash at the warehouse in case we got like E-mails. emergency questions. Yeah. And we have. So we've, we've sold them at a discount, but we've made yeah. sure that people can also find, you know, ha- buy a couple, stock up on it <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so yeah. that you don't leave you high and dry. That's another thing as well. If some, mm, if there's a loyalty yeah. to something, just because you change it, someone
1: might actually really love It just reminds me of lipstick colours. When they yeah. stop and everyone's yeah. like, I know.
3: Where do I find the colour? <laughs> I know. And you think that those, you know, super loud voices are the majority, but they're generally not. They're like <laughs> the point eleven percent that are yeah. that were buying it before, but are just really pissed off that they can't get it anymore.
1: <laughs> so funny. Can you talk us through how much it costs to develop a new product?
0: Yeah, we get asked this question a lot. It's really Depends is the answer, which I know is a really annoying answer. Mm. But I guess it depends on, first of all, the type of product you're developing, um, how complicated it is. If it's a registered product, for example, sunscreen is listed. Listed. Mm. So on the um, ARTG, you have to make sure it's compliant. So they're the complicated extra costs that go into making a product. You can also, you know, work with contract manufacturers that are a less capital intensive way of starting product versus working directly with a cosmetic chemist, if we're talking about the beauty industry. And there's also off the shelf products. Typically, you can get those overseas. It's called turnkey where you're getting, you know, the packaging and the product all in one. And there's obviously different levels of margin and risk involved with those. So what might seem like a low cost at the beginning might end up being a low margin product down the down the track. Versus, you know, if you're putting in the effort from an R and D point of view, mm. you typically do then benefit
3: from higher margins in production, mm. and you own the formula. Mm. Mm.
2: How important is owning the IP, owning the formula, do you think? Because we've had mixed feedback from people Mm. that we've interviewed on this point.
3: And I would probably give a mixed answer because it's complicated. I mean, it depends what you, and people have asked me this before, and I I think it depends. Like if you're you're a lean startup, you don't have, you know, money, you don't have investors, you're doing it on your own, you don't want to spend five years developing something, then I'd say probably not owning your own formula at the beginning is is probably the the best move. But if you are, you know, you've got the backing of people, you've got money, you've got a bit more time or you want to develop something and, you know, it's a a, quite a particular product, then, you know, working with a chemist to create that formula is probably the best thing to do. It really does depend on what you're making and I guess the, the circumstances around your launch. Yeah. I'd also add to that. I think IP is broader than just a formulation,
0: a yeah. suite of formulations um, and a technical dossier. It can be your brand. It can be your trademarks. It can be your business model. So I think it, it is a more complex answer because there are lots of different ways that you can own something, but that's just own something. I think that's yeah. something that you have to yeah,
3: have. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you can always go back and retrospectively create recreate the formula, you know, a couple After of years you. down the line. Yep. Yeah. Unless it's so, you know, high tech and innovative, in which case you're not getting it through a contract manufacturer, then there's probably no way you can't do that a couple of years down the line.
2: Can you just quickly explain the difference between contract manufacturing, cosmetic chemists and turnkey? And what do you use and why would you choose to go down a particular path?
0: So a cosmetic chemist is you're going directly to uh, a chemist that's formulating certain products for you, whether that be colour cosmetics, hair colour, hair care, or anything like that, they would then work with a manufacturer to scale up and produce at scale your formulations once you've had them approved. A contract manufacturer is often a manufacturer of those formulations from a chemist, but they can also sometimes develop their own formulations. So they're acting as the chemist and the production. But so they're kind the of getting both both of yeah. those two things. And then turnkey, often that comes, I've mostly seen it in colour cosmetics. Mm -hmm. I think you can do it in skincare as well. It's where you're going to a one-stop shop that does the formulation, the production and the packaging. So you turn the key, everything's there. And because obviously if you're working with a cosmetic chemist or a contract manufacturer, you still have to source primary, secondary packaging, whatever else you want to put the product in. They do not do that for you or some contract manufacturers do. But turnkey is kind of piecing everything together hence
1: the lower longer term margin. So we want to talk a bit about brand and marketing. Obviously, you've built such a unique looking product. It stands out, you know, from all of the other sunscreen brands that are on the shelf and this beautiful blue packaging. I love it. What was that process like? I mean, did you go out thinking, yeah, we want to create something that's just going to, it's going to catch your eye on the shelf or, you know, now that it is. But what was kind of the intention from the very beginning with the brand?
3: I think the intention, this wasn't something we discussed from the beginning, but I'm not like a muted person. I'm not a beige, black, white, soft pink kind of person. (laughs) (laughs) Um, As you guys all know. (laughs) And so, you know... I kind of had always imagined it being bright. We definitely wanted to pay, I guess, homage to the category, which is, um, you know, you do see a lot of blue and yellow in sunscreen. But we definitely wanted to, as I said, kind of turn that on its head a bit. So we obviously worked with a really amazing designer for this. And we're kind of like, this is what we're thinking. I definitely want blue. I'd seen this like Eve Klein blue statue that I was obsessed with and was like, this is the reference for the blue. Mm-hmm. And then I like neons. So like, let's find a way of working those <laughs> into. And the other thing to the neon uh, point is that it is kind of in its own way paying, I guess, respect to the category because we definitely referenced those neons that, you know, the babies of the 80s and 90s would remember being slathered on their noses and at the beach um, in terms of the zincs that you would would wear at the beach, so. There definitely is that kind of sun reference, um, but we definitely wanted to make it our own. And at the time, everything was black, white, glossier, pink. And then I guess it kind of transpired that there was this kind of move into colour, but that's not something that we, I guess, had planned for or even more like, yeah, this is the trend. Let's do it. It kind of was just what felt right for us and for the brand and for the tone of voice that we knew that she would have. Yeah, it was, it
0: was more an attitude as well. Yeah. I think that came to play as well. We didn't want to be the shrinking Violet. No. Um, we didn't want to be the patronising chemist. We didn't want to be the ne- nervous Nancy about skin cancer. Like there were lots of things we didn't want and I think yeah. we wanted a strong, confident woman. Like we wanted Violet yeah. to be this amazing Tend character out. and so I think that also played into the choice about colours. Yeah.
2: Did you have a vision? Like mm. could you see it? Yeah.
1: Could you see it as well? Like, were you on board from the beginning?
0: <laughs> yeah, Eric? I actually was looking the other day. We, we did, um, you know, a business case before we put the brand together and Ava did a couple of mood boards. And I was looking at that one of the mood boards that had like neon lights and bright blues and I, you can see it. Like, it's yeah. amazing how, I guess, you had shared that vision with me. We had it on paper, but then it really took on a life of its own once it was actually developed. So, yeah, I, I could.
2: And did your designer... Because sometimes, you know, for founders that have a really strong creative brain, a really strong creative vision, like I'm just thinking about Maver from Bread Beauty Supply. You know, she had absolute vision of what that brand looked like. And she really struggled to find somebody to translate that into a brand identity. How was that process for you? Uh,
3: this is someone we'd worked with before. So I think they, they knew us. And I think it took a, the first round. I was like, oh, no, like they're not going to get it. And then the second round, I was like, oh yeah, no, that was just like, (laughs) that was just like the little, like, you know, the small little bumps, Mm -mm. like we're just getting on the same page here because I'm one of those people who I know what I want and I forget that people don't have telepathy. So they can't read my brain and my mind. So, and I come in like that can be problematic to me, for me, you know, across lots of areas in my life, but this person definitely could kind of read my mind and kind of, got it on the second or third go i think the first mm. i think the first the first round i can't even remember what it was but it wasn't right the second round was kind of t- violet it was too violet like the purple was too was more purple than blue mm. and then i think it was the third About round it. Yeah. And it was that yeah. was it it was done
2: oh, what
3: a, so it what didn't a keep, what a lovely <laughs>
1: process so
3: it yeah. wasn't that the <laughs> oh, name joyous. on the other hand yeah, yeah, that, that is, took ah. that took a lot longer
2: tell us the story
3: well so we, there was a third person initially involved in ultraviolet before we were anything, before we'd even, and that's going back to what Beck said about the brand planning that we did mm-hmm. um, before we even decided we were going to do ultraviolet, which we'd spent about six months, mm-hmm. seven months doing. Yep. So the first, I kind of came to work one day and I was like, what about ultraviolet? And Beck was like, yes, that's exactly what I was, I was thinking. Mm. And the other person was like, oh, no, I don't like it. I can't remember why. I don't know. Can't remember. Anyway. Um, but it turned us off. We were yeah. like, Oh, okay. Oh, I was yeah. okay. like, let's kind of disregard we'll, that. Yeah, because, I mean. We'll put it we put on the we back wanted, burner. Yeah, we put it on the back burner. Yeah. And then we kind of just kept coming back to it. Mm. But, but then we were like, no, we're not going to have to trademark it because Paco Rabanne had a trademark with ultraviolet spelt in the traditional way. And then we were kind of like, okay, well, could we turn it into a girl's name and make it, you know, like mm. violet? And then we were like, no, we're probably not going to get the trademark approved. So let's come up with a whole different, yeah. And there was just no- nothing felt right. We had a different name. And what trademarking, was it? What
2: was it? <laughs> Can you share? It? Sure. Yeah. it was
3: It was it, was, was it Spark. It the
0: spark.
2: Spark. Yeah. Spark.
0: Yeah.
3: spark. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Spark then, kind of. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. 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 lady brains yeah. Yeah. like it's you know.
0: Yeah. yeah. It, like trademarking takes a long time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah it does. And so yeah. we waited the we waited the 8 months. It was about 8 months. Yeah. We went through the process, waited, and in the meantime we were still like firing like you know, Plan Bs at each other, and it was like, nope, nope, nope. Yeah. And the day that we got that trademark, it suddenly felt we hadn't started creative at that point. We literally waited for that before yeah. we invested yeah. money in creative. It was just like, okay, this really might happen because we yeah. both loved the name, yeah. and we finally got it. Yeah. And that's, I guess, that's another learning. We've been able to get it internationally now as yeah. well. So we've just ploughed away at getting this trademark. It wasn't easy. Or or cheap. No. Um, <laughs> but, um, and when you're dealing with, you know, Pocari Pocari ban. Ban. <laughs> so it So well, um, yeah. we've just been like plowing away in the background to get it. But that was a moment where we, we got that trademark. It was like, okay, this really might happen.
1: Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. So did they have an objection? Not in Australia. Not in Australia. But, but overseas. In, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so you had to obviously battle that. That's yeah. what it's sounding yeah. like.
3: It's still an ongoing. We've got Europe. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yep. But not, but the, not US. the U.S. Yet.
0: Um, we're working on the U.S. Yeah.
2: Mm. I want to talk a little bit about fundraising because you guys are self-funded. You mm-hmm. haven't taken <clears throat> on investment at all yet. You know, you're growing the business quite quickly. You've mm-hmm. launched into Sephora. You're about mm-hmm. to launch into the UK. Mm-hmm. How are you funding that growth? Because typically, it would require external investment or loans or whatever it might be.
0: So we funded the business ourselves for now. And, um, you know, I guess we're not saying that's how it's going to be forever, but we've been Mm. able to grow the business up until this point. With our own contribution, you know, we run the business full-ish time in, in, in the business. And I guess a couple of things have really enabled that. Firstly, at the beginning, we were really laser focused on making sure we had good cost of goods and a high margin product. We didn't invest in unnecessary overheads. You know, COVID did help us not have to have an office for another extra 12 months. So we've only just moved into a tiny office. We've hired only after we've kind of rolled our sleeves up and done every single yeah. job ourselves. And now we have we have an amazing financial controller, Emma. She's um, she's really great at kind of helping us project our cash flow, make sure we've got our operating expenses in line with, with cash flow and also orders because as you're growing, like your order investment gets bigger and bigger, your investment in stock obviously has to cope with that increased demand. But you know what, with the right planning and a good start, it's not impossible. And I don't think we're going to be able to go all the way without getting some investment. We're just looking at some scenarios at the moment. But I guess it was important to us to have control from the beginning and to back ourselves. And to really see, can we give this a red hot go, just the two of us? And, And so far, we have with a great team of amazing supporters, I might add. But investment kind of takes you into a new path. And at the point that the business is ready for that, we'll absolutely be open to choosing the right strategic partners to go on that next part of the, of the growth phase with us. But for now, I think I put it down to like lots of planning and, and really investing in a good financial team. Like when I yeah. hear about businesses that don't even have a good accountant, you know, it doesn't have to be a CFO you know, Emma's part-time, she, you know, has kids at home, we all like have different lives. So I think it's about finding someone that's got some expertise, whether it's your accountant, whether it's a boyfriend, whether it's a girlfriend who's, you know, works in finance, but get some good advice yeah. and, and really get that cash flow under control from the get-go.
2: Have you had to sacrifice anything doing it this way?
3: Uh, I mean, look. There's something really alluring about the idea of getting cash because it sounds like, like it sounds like <laughs> no. the French champagne. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it sounds like you know you've. When I read about people getting like millions of dollars, I'm like, you think, oh, they are they taking money? Is it all going to the business? How does mm. it work? And we don't have the answers to that question no. because we've not taken money. But there is something exciting about thinking, oh, like we could just blow this up. You know, mm. we could hire a ho- an amazing team of experts in their field. We can, you know, go straight to China or America or whatever it is. We can pay ourselves properly. We can buy a house. <laughs> <and wherever laughs> it is. No, that's not, that's <laughs> like, so there is something kind of, a. but then you think about the flip side is the lack of the control. In some instances, it might feel like you've got a boss again, which Beck and I are very adamant that we do not want. There's more people you've got to, I guess, imp, not impress, but there's a ad- lot yeah. more. Yeah. Man- yeah. lots more yeah. ad- probably lots yeah. more
0: admin. <laughs> And look, don't get us wrong, accountability, we are absolutely accountable yeah. to each other. We run a month end process, like we do run a tight ship. But there's, there's a lot of
3: rigor in this in the business. And yeah. that's absolutely because of Beck. <laughs> <laughs> well And, and you're open to it and you're very, Oh, I love yeah, it. She does. It's so funny, like, you know, obviously I handle the marketing branding like I've anything forward facing. And, mm. you know, I always get asked the questions like, oh, how did you how did Ultraviolet become so successful? And, you know, the obvious answer is to say, you know, we had some great PR and people loved it and the product's good, blah, blah, blah. And all that stuff actually absolutely is true. But there's the whole stuff behind the scenes that if we don't have product, if if we don't have rigor in our operations and forecast and an order schedule, we don't have anything to market and we don't have product and we don't have sales. So there's like everything's
1: got to work hand in hand. I don't know where I'm going with this and why I'm here. It. That's okay. <laughs> I mean, it's a great point. Every function of the business is equally as important. You yeah. have to have full well, and full eyesight across all of it as a business owner, especially in those early days, mm. right? Yeah. And
0: it's almost maybe having a partner, because I'm just thinking as you're saying that, like I feel accountable to you. Yeah, absolutely. So there, there is that element of you know, I'm not just a sole trader thrashing it out. I do feel responsible and accountable to someone. And it's, you know, my partner,
1: I think that's also really yeah. valid. Yeah, I mm-hmm. said that this morning too. I'm like, you know, got to show, we show up for each other. Yeah. absolutely. So you recently did an IRL activation in Melbourne and Sydney, which I'm sure was super exciting because, you know, we haven't been able to get out and just enjoy, you know, other people's company. Can you tell us why did you decide to do that? At this point in time?
3: Well, I think we'd been talking about it since pretty much the beginning, I think,
1: the idea of, you know, mm.
3: bringing Violet. And, and at this, at I think when we started talking about it, we didn't have a physical retailer and now that we do in Sephora, and so it was kind of a way for us to be able to reach people and them to be able to try the product and, and you know, I guess meet the people behind the brand, I suppose, and see the brand in real life. But I think it kind of came to a point in COVID where we were like, we need to do something mm. like we need to like get this show on the road. Shake it up, yeah. quite literally. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> and have something to look forward to. Have something to look forward to. And, you know, we'd done some small things in our first year that were like, you know, we partnered with the amazing Phoebe from The Blow and kind of did a little pop-up there and that was more for sales, I guess. And this time we were kind of like we, we want to get to, you know, maybe places where that are, you know, within our demographic but maybe people haven't heard of us or, you know, and get, you know, sample in real life. But I think in COVID we were kind of like we need something fun. Um, we need to do this in a really fun way. Like let's do like ice cream truck. Frozen margaritas. Do you remember?
0: We were, we were walking, walking the around tan the town because we couldn't meet together because, yeah. you know, I think we had masks on and that yeah, was a kind of walking meeting. It was winter. And we were like, it's just cold. if someone drove a margarita van up to your house yeah. and
3: had some cool tunes. Like, wouldn't that just be great? Like an ice cr- old traditional ice cream van, <laughs> but like the green sleeves or whatever it is, but with <laughs> a frozen margarita. And it felt very on brand for us. But I think we just kind of wanted to do something that was, you know, not necessarily a party. Um, that you, where you're only you know inviting VIPs, media influencers, but really kind of I guess celebrate the year that that was with our consumers. Mm. Um, and although we could only get to two cities, I think we definitely were able to meet a lot of people. And I also I guess we wanted to see as well I guess how big the pool was and how mm. and whether people actually liked us and yeah. like and whether they would be engaged in some they would want to come to something like that. And I guess,
0: you know, you guys can relate to this. When you're an online, like a digital brand, yeah. it's different to being in, in real life. You have your supper clubs and, and various things where you get people together in person. And I, it was just a proof point of, yeah. is anyone actually listening to people <laughs> like us? <to> this? <laughs> or do they just like our products? And there was you one know? moment. So we did an event opposite Gilson in the um, Botanical Gardens just outside there. And it was a beautiful Thursday evening. It yeah. was about 27 degrees. We had a DJ. We had pizza, margaritas, and I looked over and other than the line of people waiting for product that a lot of them had come specially for yeah. product or oh, giving away samples and everyone was in a good mood. Yeah. People were happy to be outside. People bought picnic blankets hang to sit down and hang out with their friends in the park. Like it was this beautiful moment where I was so proud that yeah. these are the people that are buying our this, product. Like how, what an awesome bunch of people yeah. that have turned up in real life. Like it was a beautiful experience. Yeah. And I think in terms of, you know, how do you measure success? You know, we didn't sell a huge amount of product. That wasn't the point. Wasn't the point it was yeah. really about testing the brand in person. And if that was the test of those people that turned up, I could not be happier. Yeah.
2: I want to ask, over the course of the last couple of years since you've launched and even before that, what has been one of the most challenging things about this that you didn't expect? I mean, you guys both had experience in the space. You were very, you know you had experience in product formulation, brand, literally everything, but going to Mm. a business where everything's on your shoulders, it's a completely different ball game. So yeah, what's been one of the most challenging things?
0: I think it was the most challenging before, for me personally, Mm. before we launched, because you're in this weird limbo of, Mm -hmm. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this, we're gonna do this. Yeah. And, and, Some people believe you and really back you and help you. But I can, it's completely understandable that people hear that a lot. So it almost felt like I just need this to be real so then we can get going. And then it was once we were going, then we were familiar with, you know, building a brand, building a business less so, but we've, you know, we've kind of got some people that have helped us and we've listened and we've learned and we've pieced things together. But it was that early phase and that was about two years where, we were working really hard on something, trying to juggle part-time jobs, other jobs. Consulting. Keep some cash flow yeah. and do some consulting, trying to do all this stuff for a brand that wasn't necessarily out, or definitely wasn't out there. And yeah. so I, I
3: found the psychology that was, of that yeah. really challenging. And especially because we'd both gone from brands, you know, that had a lot of clout to a brand that didn't really, there was nothing behind it. So to be able to tell people like, oh, I work at Mecca or I work at Rationale or I work at, you know, Tom, yeah. organic or whatever it is, to then be like, Oh, I'm starting my own thing, there's a lot of justifiably, yeah, yeah, cool, like good for you. Let's yeah. see how far this goes. So I think yeah. kind of going that, even like from an ego point of view to having this mm. part of your identity wrapped up in a in a role that's seen to be like, you know, really exciting and cool, to starting your own thing, which where there isn't there's no there's no proof behind what you're doing yet. All you've mm. got is. And even still,
0: like there are still challenges. Um, we spoke with a retailer last week who was really keen to have the brand. We can't tell you who it is yet. And they said, oh, have you contacted us before? And we said, yes, like over a year ago. And they said, oh, really sorry. You weren't on our radar then. Yeah. So uh, it's also that time and place. And you ha- sometimes just having patience is like a superhero skill yeah. in this game. Because if we had given up with that retailer back then, we persevered a little bit, and then we took a different route. Yeah, and it was a twenty-minute conversation. It was a job done. So it goes yeah. to show how you just sometimes you need a few different chips to fall in place. Yeah, and and I think at the very beginning you need every chip to fall into place. It's really tough. Yeah, but as it, it does get easier, I think as it gets going.
2: What are you most scared of?
0: Failure, losing it all. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Pretty does much. that keep yeah. you going? Yeah. We don't operate from a place of fear every day. No, no. But Ava says this sometimes, like, you'll be celebrating something amazing and there's yeah. always that in the back of your mind. What if this all goes away? Yeah. So, you know, I think it always has to be there. It has to keep mm. you on your toes. Yeah.
3: Stash um, the cash. We need to stash <laughs> as much cash, not personally, but in yeah. the business. It's, right. Right. I, is it in the yeah. it's like, whenever I... Is in the walls? Like, where is it? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah, we're very... We kind of still operate in that. Well, I do. And I think you do as well yeah. from that lean very lean startup mentality even though we've got money you know to spend I'm kind of like oh don't don't spend it <laughs> don't spend it uh, yeah. in case we need it because our brand is <laughs> collapsed <laughs> we need to pick ourselves. Chest. yeah yeah and, and you know that's part of
0: the decision-making process when's the right time to spend and when's the right time not to because yeah. the converse of that is thinking I'll be pushing this business hard enough yeah mm. so it, it's a real I, I spend a lot of time between those two. Tension points. Yeah, yeah. Tension yeah. points. And, and, you know, that's in decision making, like, is it the right time to hire this key person? Yeah. You know, is it the right time role. to get an office? We had, you know, two beautiful full-time employees that needed a home. We, yeah. we needed to get out of our home. So it was the right time. But then you still think, oh, you know, is, is it too early? So, you, you know, you're constantly, and, and I guess the challenge is to not be constantly doubting yourself, but you're constantly, constantly okay with the tension point between those two. I think that yeah. that's good business sense. You're not going a full steam ahead without checking your decision making, but you have to catch yourself that doesn't limit your growth potential as well. Yeah.
1: Well, I'd love to know from both of you, the best piece of business advice that you've either received or that you would like to share with the listeners.
0: I think it's something that I've just been developing recently and it's through conversations that we've been having. I think a great bit of business advice that I would give is take your lifestyle into account when you're coming up with the idea and this and the model for your business, because I think if you start with with your lifestyle as a part of the business, then it's going to be more sustainable. Mm-hmm. And you know, you're not going to develop a gin brand if you don't like going out drinking. Yeah, and you're not going to develop. Um, I don't know. Cafe, like launch a cafe if you don't like oh, getting yeah, up early in the mornings. And for me, my family is really important to me. My friends are really important to me. Having a well balanced life is really important to me. So, having a business that wasn't going to be too much of a time suck on every other part of my life was really important to me. So, you know, for that reason, we haven't gone into mass retail distribution. We haven't built a team of 50 people overnight. I think it does play out to how you grow in terms of what you're prepared to offer from your whole life. So I think if you start with your, like a really clear view of what lifestyle you want to lead and how the business can become a part of that, I think it's a more sustainable and enjoyable journey thereafter.
3: (laughs) Um, (laughs) I was thinking something amazing might come to me in that few minutes of you talking. No, I mean, look, this is going to sound really weird for me to say because it's the opposite of how I operate. But, um, I really do think being rigorous in the operational and getting like a lot of your I's dotted and T's crossed in that early stage, like getting your trademarks under, you know, starting that process and kind of setting up the business properly rather than having to then go back and do all of that stuff and get, you know, do two years of accounting because you've kind of just let it build up and, you know, not really realising how much stock you've got. Like all of those kind of things really help build a brand and build a successful business. So I think a lot of the unsexy things, especially they might be sexy to other people, but they're not sure as shit, not sexy to me. <laughs> but a lot of those sexy, unsexy things, getting all of that kind of tied up and done before you, you've you really started doing anything is going to help you so much more. Like we've heard so many stories of, you know, Estee Lauder coming in to buy someone and then looking at their books and being like, what is this shit show? You know, Mm -hmm. that stuff, if you get that kind of sorted at the beginning and it's something that you carry forward with you, you're going to be in so much, like a much better position. And the other thing I would say is just like expect to fail and expect to fail in some capacity. Um, if you expect it, it's probably not as much of a shock (laughs) and just move, move on. Like you've got to move through it. Otherwise you'll just be paralyzed. You can't make it, you know, you won't be able to make a decision.
2: Well, we're very excited to see where you guys take it we can't wait Thanks, and um, we should be really proud of what you've yeah. created it's just amazing
3: thank you thank you both
2: what a cracking duo here's what we took away from that conversation firstly find the joy in the work that you're doing and really build in moments of fun like ava and beck who love to share a glass of french champagne who doesn't what's going to bring you moments of happiness on a sometimes really tough business journey Secondly, it sounds obvious, but make sure you can get the trademark for your business before you invest too much in developing the brand. In Australia, this can take up to nine months to process, so make sure you jump on it early. And lastly, get the right financial support around you from the very beginning so you don't waste your time down the track. And this doesn't have to be an expensive or complicated process. It can be as simple as getting a really, really good accountant on board. That's it from us. If you want to hear more chats like this, make sure you subscribe to the Lady Brains podcast. Tell a friend about us and join the conversation in our Facebook group, The Lady Brains Clubhouse.
1: Lady Brains is hosted by Anna McKenzie and Caitlin Judd. The producer is Brooke Carrigan. Audio production by Matt Nikolic.